Welcome to the Change Healthcare Podcast. I'm Rich Levin. On today's show, Rob Capabianco interviews Aparna Higgins. Aparna Higgins' career has been focused on value-based payment. More than 10 years ago, while she was at Booz Allen, she co-led the design of the Medicare Hospital Value-Based Purchasing Report to Congress. It was one of the first programs recommended to the CMS that defined how hospitals could be assessed and rewarded for care quality. And the report's recommendations? Well, they were implemented when the CMS was authorized under the Affordable Care Act to implement the program. More recently, as an executive at AHIP, America's Health Insurance Plans, Aparna led organizational efforts on payment and delivery system reform, including examining and identifying industry-wide best practices in the design and implementation of alternative payment models, also known as APMs, and the Core Quality Measures Collaborative. She spent the majority of her career thinking about incentives, incentive design, and how you assess and reward performance. These days, Aparna is the founder and CEO of Ananya Health Innovations. She's also a guiding committee member of the Healthcare Payment Learning and Action Network, also known as The LAN, which was established to accelerate the healthcare system's transition to alternative payment models. The LAN's major contribution to the industry is the APM framework, which provides healthcare stakeholders a roadmap to understand, design, and assess the adoption of alternative payment models. We asked Aparna to join us on the Change Healthcare podcast to talk about how the APM framework can help payers and providers achieve their value-based payment goals. And now, here's Rob Capabianco and Aparna Higgins discussing alternative payment models and value-based care. There's a framework for that. Welcome back, everybody. I'm joined today by Aparna Higgins, the founder and CEO of Ananya Health Innovations. Aparna, could we start out with you telling us a little bit about your background, specifically as it relates to your work in alternative payment models? Sure. Um, so first of all, glad to be here and to be on the uh, on this podcast with uh, with you, Rob. Um, so uh, I my um, career essentially has been focused on uh, value-based payment, and it really has been sort of a major focus throughout my career. Uh, and I sort of, I think back to over a decade ago when I was at Booz Allen, um, and I co-led the design of the Medicare Hospital Value-Based Purchasing Report to Congress. Um, so this was really the, one of the first programs that uh, we recommended to CMS in terms of how should hospitals be uh, assessed, rewarded um, for the quality of care that they were delivering. And that report to Congress actually got implemented when CMS got the authority uh, under the ACA to implement the program. So it was very satisfying for me. To sort of more recently, as an executive at uh, America's Health Insurance Plans, or AHIP, uh, where I led organizational efforts on payment and delivery system reform, and that included examining and identifying industry-wide you know, uh, best practices, in uh, the design and implementation of APMs, um, some of which has led, led to published work in health affairs. Um, I also led the Core Quality Measures Collaborative. So, you know, and, and the reason I bring that up is because the focus of that work was really on uh, how do you choose and align measures in these new APM contracts. So, um, so my career focus has been on thinking and, and uh, doing work around a APMs and value-based payment, 
but not just the incentive piece, but the other components, you know, as well. Um, so I've spent the majority of my career thinking about incentives, incentive design, and, and how you assess and reward performance. And thank you for joining us. Love to have you on the program. There's another organization that you have been part of as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Healthcare Payment Learning and Action Network? What is its mission and the goal of what they call HCP LAN? Who's involved in that network and what's your relationship with that organization? Sure. I'm happy to do that. Um, so the Healthcare Payment Learning and Action Network, or as some of us affectionately call it, or as many of us, I should say, affectionately call it, the LAN, um, the, it was really established to um, help accelerate, you know, the healthcare system's transition to alternative payment models. Um, and it was unique in that respect because it was really trying to um, harness the um, you know, the power of multi-stakeholder partnership and multi-stakeholder collaboration. So the LAN, um, you know, had a variety of different stakeholders at the table, you know, payers, providers, uh, obviously when I say payers, that includes CMS, um, consumer groups and, you know, employers uh, and so forth. Um, and the and I was formerly a member of the guiding committee. The LAN had a variety of committees, committee structures but the uh, guiding committee essentially was sort of providing strategic direction and uh, was this multi-stakeholder partnership that was helping drive the work of the LAN, and I was formerly part of that, you know, guiding committee. Um, the LAN, uh, you know, in terms of how the LAN has gone about achieving its goals and missions, I would say uh, through a variety of ways. Um, one, uh, as you and others are probably are aware, uh, the LAN uh, released, uh, developed and released, I should say, uh, the Alternative Payment Model or APM framework um, and has been measuring adoption of APMs for the past um, at least three years, if I, my memory serves me correctly. Um, and it's also released a you know, series of white papers and recommendations around model design, both around both population-based models like ACOs, but um, also... Uh, for, you know, clinical episode models, um, you know, recommendations on how to think about measurement and how to think about financial benchmarking. Um, and I would say most recently, uh, you know, it's uh, initiated its capstone project, which has since been completed, obviously, uh, called the APM Roadmap that was focused on identifying and sharing, you know, promising or best practices for successfully implementing APMs. Um, so um, that's, I think, that was a lot, but that's sort of, in a, if I were in a nutshell, try to describe the land mission and the land work, um, that probably is a, you know, is, a, is a good and fair characterization of it. You're certainly drawn over your career here to propelling the APM market. Did you see this as a capstone for yourself, too, just a place where you could deposit years of learning from booze and AHIP and a number of your previous initiatives? Was this part of the calling for you to come to the organization or at least help guide it? Uh, I, I would say yes. I think uh, my role on the guiding committee was certainly – um, to help bring my experience and my industry experience. Because, um, you know, at AHIP, I spent a lot of time working with our members and understanding, you know, uh, payment reform and uh, design implementation challenges and so forth. So I was excited to bring that experience and expertise and perspective to the guiding committee and also uh, specifically, you know, to this particular roadmap effort 
you know, serving as a strategic advisor. Can you share some of the ways that the land helps payers achieve their VVP goals? Sure. Um, so I think uh, I would say that they help, you know, sort of plans achieve um, VVP goals in a few different ways. Um, first, I think it's just for the plants who are participating to have a seat at the table and be able to interact and and hear other perspectives from the other stakeholder groups that are that are at the table, be it the providers or the employers or the consumers. Um, you know, usually those sessions are you know rich dialogue, but it's also an opportunity for them to you know learn from each other. Um, some of the I would say you know what I would call foundational tools that the that the land um, developed, um, which I've talked about, which um, you know the framework. Uh, think how to think about performance measurement, you know, benchmarking, certainly the roadmap, um, I think is, are all extremely sort of useful tools for, um, for payers, as, you know, to employ in their own efforts to transition to APMs. Um, and then I think uh, there were also some other sort of very specific collaboratives that were established uh, that brought payers together to implement, you know, population-based payment models like CPC Plus, you know, which was a multi-payer model. Um, and then uh, the measurement effort, certainly for the pro- from the plants or the payer standpoint, I, I would say, you know, helps provide sort of a benchmark, you know. So, you know, most plans are really committed to this journey around value-based payment and are trying to move the ball forward, but it's also helpful for them to see, you know, where they are relative to, you know, everybody else across the nation. So I would say there are a variety of, you know, ways in which the land, you know, sort of supports and helps advance, you know, plan initiatives around value-based payment. One of the aspects that you spoke about was the ability to bring the constituents to the table. And I think that that's a valuable concept I just want to dive into. Certainly from my own experience, this is not a one-way directed initiative. You need to be able to pull on the employers, your providers, because it's actually sort of a behavioral change we're going for in terms of how you form relationships. Can you speak to how the earlier meetings probably went as you started to go? Was there any reluctance there on behalf of the health plan or any of the constituents to get together? How does that help the market propel in these APMs? Um, so I can't speak to the early meetings because I wasn't on the uh, guiding committee the entire time from the time it was um, established, you know. Uh, so uh, I kind of came into it in the middle of it. So there was a certain cadence to the meetings um, by the time I got there. Um, so I will say, though, having been part of the guiding committee, um, you had a group of very committed folks. Um, who really believed in the importance of value and figuring out a way to get to value through changing payment reform. So I think they all shared the common goal. Um, But, you know, and also a willingness to uh, learn and understand the challenges the other stakeholders were perhaps experiencing and then try to think sort of collectively about, you know, what could we do to move things forward. so in terms of how the early meetings went, um, I, you know, uh, I wasn't involved, so it's not something that I can really comment on. What about in your own experience? Yeah, the, like, I mean, I think, like I said, I think that the, during the time I was on the guiding committee and attending the meetings and so forth, um, you know, I found it to be a very collaborative forum. And, you know, kudos to the two co-chairs, Mark McClellan and Mark Smith, um, 
you know, their leadership obviously was very uh, instrumental in that sort of establishing the collaborative nature of the forum as well. But um, I think everybody shared a common goal. And, um, you know, there was a lot of good work that, um, you know, that has come out of that collaboration. Can you give the listeners an overview here? It's a very nicely structured roadmap in several different pieces. I like the notion of this promising practices. Can you just describe it to the listeners so they can visualize it in their mind and maybe encapsulate what are some of the modules or steps of the roadmap? Sure, I can. So I just want to clarify a couple of things. So I think some of the um, you know comments or remarks I made were more broadly focused on the guiding committee because that's how I understood your question and um, what I'm going to talk about. So I want to do a little bit of level setting with respect to the roadmap itself first before I talk about promising practices, if that's okay. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so I wanted to give a little bit more background as to why, you know, um, uh, the, the, the land guiding committee he thought it was important to, to take on this capstone project. And, you know, the land had been measuring sort of progress towards APM adoption, um, and the guiding committee felt that it was important to sort of shift from, you know, tracking adoption uh, of APMs uh, and and not sort of thinking about, well, let's implement APMs for its own sake, but, but really ensuring that, you know, successful models were being adopted. Um, and understanding, as you said, the best practices associated with success. Um, and then, you know, in keeping with its tradition of making available useful tools um, to the field, um, you know, the GC, the guiding committee felt that it was important to share these best practices more broadly with the field, you know, to really help accelerate the adoption of successful APMs. Again, I think that, you know, sort of ties back um, to the mission of the LAN. Um, the roadmap itself, um, you know, just to, before I talk about promising practices, to give the audience a bit of understanding about the scope of, you know, who we talked to and what kinds of models were included in the, in the roadmap. Um, uh, there was a very sort of structured process and methodology that was followed to come up with the promising practices. I'm not going to talk about that, you know, uh, if, if people who are interested can go to the website to learn more about it, um, but suffice it to say that the, you know, the what's reflected in the roadmap is based on a literature review as well as data gathered from, you know, uh, about nine national and regional payers um, and also, you know, 13 provider organizations. Um, now, even though there are only nine payers, they accounted for about 135 million covered lives. So, you know, in terms of scope, it's pretty broad. Um, it was also pretty broad in terms of focusing on um, what we call in the land, you know, category three and four models, which include shared savings, shared risk, global budgets, um, and then uh, both, you know, episode models as well as, you know, population-based um, payment models. Um, so that's just, you know, a little bit of context setting. So as I talk about promising practices, um, you know, the audience has sort of a sense for that. Um, so in terms of the practices themselves, I think, you know, given the rich nature of the discussions that we had with these nine payers and provider organizations, um, there were a number of practices that emerged. But I would say, you know, and, and we characterized it in this in this way, into sort of three broad themes or domains. One is, you know, sort of around APM design. Um, the other, you know, was around payer pro provider collaboration, which I'm 
sure is not surprising to you. And then sort of the third leg of this stool or the third domain, I would say, is around, you know, person-centered care. Um, and the roadmap has, you know, a lot more um, specifics and detail around each of these, you know, three um, main uh, domains and, and uh, you know, individuals who are interested can sort of do a deep dive into each of these domains. But if um, but it might be helpful um, for me to highlight some of the some examples that I think um, you know would be of interest to the audience. Um, so uh, you know, as as you and I'm sure many of your um, many in the audience know, um, you know, collaboration between provider and payer is key, um, both in the you know design phase, but also in the implement implementation phase. Um, I think what we heard from the providers is that they want to have more input into the APM design phase. And, you know, while this is not always easy uh, to accomplish, um, I think there are approaches that are being used that could work. Um, you know, for example, you know, some pairs were identifying small cohorts of um, providers who were more advanced, you know, designing and testing it out with them before they rolled it out more broadly. Others were using approaches like establishing joint operating committees where there was ongoing dialogue and communication and collaboration around, um, you know, APM design. Um, so, you know, that's sort of one example where there are some challenges as you try to get these kinds of collaborations going, but there are also some, you know, tested approaches in the field, um, you know, to help that happen. I have found that's a continuous sort of evolving practice that you have. You don't have it as you would in the whole old fee-for-service world. You meet three years, you put your dukes up, and you kind of fight about 2 to 3% increase. I've seen, at least in our own practices here, that if you're meeting with those providers quarterly that are involved in your evolving efforts of APM, depending on what kind of model you're using, that it is a practice that you continue. It's not something you start and finish with. It's something that goes along with the operations of the program. Would you agree? Yes. Yeah, I would wholeheartedly agree with that. I think that's, that is um, what we observed, and that's, you know, within this, the roadmap effort itself, and that's also based on sort of my own experience um, outside of the roadmap. I think that's, that's very true. Um, and, you know, the other um, area where I think collaboration, you know, really matters and an area that's super important as you know is, is data and analytics and you know you hear a lot about the importance of data and analytics in these new models um, and certainly we found that to be the case uh, in the roadmap um, as, a, as important for success um, but it's also true as you know that you know getting access to data and the ability to use these data you know varies a lot among providers um, so, uh, you know, there, there are ways in which, you know, providers are trying to overcome those challenges. Um, I think in, in cases where you have, you know, smaller providers that may not have the infrastructure to, or the capacity to ingest, let's say, raw, you know, claims data directly from the plans, and, you know, they tend to rely more on, you know, analytic reports like care gap reports and so forth that plans share with providers. You know, although some of the larger systems we spoke with had, you know, built integrated claims and clinical data repositories. And so having access to claims data they felt was really important. And, and that was one thing that they did bring up, you know, the providers did bring up as important in the context of, you know, um, 
taking on and managing downside risk. So having better data and better information was sort of they felt was one of the you know important things um, for success. Yeah. And I completely agree with you. You need to be ready, especially as the payer, and and you're thinking about your rural areas and pieces like that, to be ready with data and be ready to discuss it, get down into the details. But one provider explained to me their experience as we were developing out some analytical reviews was getting into some of the early APMs was like getting into a cockpit of a plane with no instruments in front of them. Therein lied the reluctance to get on board. So there was this notion of information transparency, mainly around the idea that the relationship change happens in the payer becomes an opportunity provider to their doctor partners in that, I want you to sign up with these programs, especially when you're going to go into downside risk, which I think we, I want to come back to because it's a, it's a pretty meaty topic, but you need to be able to show them how to win. It's not that they don't want to win. They, they would like to be more efficient. They got into health to perform and do good work and promote outcomes. So I think the role of the payer in the relationship becomes less of a financial transaction management entity to one that says, I've got a lot of data and it gets even better when I share it with you and we have a dialogue about what it actually means because coding behavior is not always exactly about the care that's going on. Let's have a dialogue about that. A foundation in analytics, a foundation in sharing is part of that relationship chain. Right. Right. And and I think the the other piece to this is, I think it's two aspects. One is flexibility, which I think that payers, at least on the plan side, they're very sensitized to and really try to tailor because they can. It's much easier for plans to tailor each contract to each provider and to their sort of specific circumstance. Um, and so, you know, if it's a smaller practice, you know, what we found through the roadmap is that, you know, as you can imagine it's harder for them to take on a lot of the functions, whether it's practice transformation or, you know, trying to make sense of the data and the reports that they're getting on their own. Um, and, you know, this is where I think the payers, um, you know, are stepping in and, and providing that support. And, you know, smaller providers can overcome some of the challenges by working with their payers to identify areas they could focus on, for example, you know, for QI, um, how they can use care management and other infrastructure fees that the, you know, plans are providing them with to change their workforce, you know, for example, if they had to hire, you know, care coordinator. Um, and also, again, how to use, you know, data and reports to manage their, you know, population. Um, and I think that flexibility uh, in terms of structure, but also calibrating the level of support is something that we observed, you know, relative to the plan provider relationship, depending on whether the providers were smaller versus larger, you know, systems who certainly have a lot of infrastructure and more resources to kind of take on, you know, transformation efforts. Absolutely. And I think sometimes, especially in the journey to APMs, that there's a realization that whether you choose to move into pop health structure or a bundled payment, 
P4P program, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of alternative things you can learn out of the analytic discipline, referral traffic and patterns, the care coordination patterns, what is broadly referred to as that provider's medical network, their neighborhood of doctors that they rely upon in their care practices are, regardless if you move them into a value-based payment or an alternative payment model, it gives a tremendous insight into both the payer and provider and how care is actually taking place. So I'm glad you brought it up because there's a lot of additional value just really understanding the transaction beyond the coding level really provides to you. Right, right. One thing I really like about the model, love the fact that you have a specific domain around patient-centered care. I think a lot of efforts are around the transactions and training and learning kind of had to have a new relationship, outcome achievement. And I love the notion of benefit design because I want to be around when we move from project around APMs to products where you actually have and have gone kind of to the last mile where you pull in the member benefit. Because again, you're pulling the consumer into the design there. I really like the domain piece there that you you didn't lose sight of who I think is most important. It's all of us. We're we're at the center of all this stuff. So do you want to talk about that that last domain there? Sure. So the roadmap actually, um, in terms of trying to learn about, um, you know, person-centered care, um, we talked about that with both payers and providers. And, um, you know, both the payers and providers are working to, um, you know, address um, the issue of uh, patient engagement, you know, in a variety of um, ways, um, right? So from the payer standpoint, they're, they're looking at a variety of approaches, you know, they're trying to promote shared decision-making and ensure health literacy. Um, you know, they are working with their providers to um, establish care compacts with their, with their patients. So this is not just having a treatment plan, but also kind of thinking about what's the role of the provider and what's the role of the patient, whether it's, you know, if you're given a prescription around medication adherence, for example. Um, and then, um, you know, uh, I think one area where there's still maybe some work to be done is payers engaging, you know, patients or, or consumers in the actual design, you know, of the model. Um, so and I think that's something for, for sort of forward-looking would be an area that, you know, would require some additional work. Um, we also found that in, in sort of doing this roadmap effort or undertaking this roadmap effort that... You know, there's a lot of work payers are doing around trying to address health equity. Um, you know, we all kind of hear a lot now about social determinants of health, um, and they try to do that through using multidisciplinary teams and being able to identify community resources uh, that, you know, patients can reach out to, whether it's, you know, uh, food or transportation and so forth, and really sort of trying to address those you know, social determinants of health, and then through the incentive structure or payments to pro- to providers trying to um, make sure that um, they're indirectly supporting, you know, provider efforts in this area. Um, now, from the provider standpoint, you know, patient-centered care is all is kind of what they're about. So, you know, and, and there it's very hands-on. It's very direct, obviously, because they're involved in that, you know, patient, uh, direct relationship with the payment. And, 
And even the providers in these these new models, um, you know, some of the best practices that we heard is how they engage their patients through a variety of, you know, um, channels, you know, using smartphone apps or portals, um, um, and then trying to get them engaged in their communities, whether it's schools or, you know, um, foundations or local community centers, those sorts of things. Um, we also heard, and this was interesting for me, um, providers are convening patient advisory committees to get patient input. Um, and so in terms of, you know, their experience with the practice, but then also use those patient advisory committees as an opportunity to sort of um, share or push information out uh, relative to um, uh, access to care after hours, you know, things of that nature. Um, and, and um, uh, you know, increasing access for patients is obviously a big, you know, focus for many of these practices. Um, you know, they also... Um, you know, said that for some providers, uh, for some of the patients, you know, getting to the practice might be, you know, challenging, which is where sort of the transportation services comes into play. Um, but, you know, trying to improve access in other ways, you know, whether it's after hours and trying to, you know, avoid unnecessary ED utilization and potentially using sort of telemedicine as a way to, you know, engage um, patients. So, um, so I, I would say there's a lot going on in the area of patient engagement. I think with benefit design, that was not a sort of major focus of exploration for us with the roadmap. We did hear, um, you know, from the payers about um, benefit design, uh, and obviously value-based benefit design is, is one of the ways that they're approaching this and, and trying to incent patients and consumers and get them engaged in the care as well. I think um, there's more work to be done there. Um, there's also the, you know, challenge of purchasers wanting to give their uh, employees choice. And so, you know, when you have benefit design a particular way, you're trying to balance that with, you know, with choice and open access and so forth. So there's always that sort of tension. Um, and, and then I think the other um, uh, area that's starting to develop that we heard about in the roadmap is, is you know, these products that are designed around, you know, ACOs. Um, but I think there's more sort of room for, you know, future work in terms of understanding where the market is today and, and sort of thinking about, you know, where it needs to go. As you progress in your models, especially if you're thinking about moving from retrospective to prospective, there's certainly, if you think about how prospective is paid and you don't think about how that affects the downstream payments, especially from a patient or a member or beneficiary, depending on the constituents uh, you serve, is these products were built upon co-pays and out-of-pockets and, and certain percentages that the consumer is in charge of. And so when you make a financial arrangement, especially in the prospective area and probably even greater so when you're involving risk, that you haven't necessarily fully automated it if you can't really tie it back to, okay, how did that affect the way that the patient or member or consumer was supposed to pay? Because you've changed a little bit of the financial underpinnings of the traditional product that was purchased. So as I've got mature in the area and just started to think about some of the frontier problems or, or opportunities, I guess I should say, is really starting to think about some of those future mechanics around the product design. Because without that, you're not automating it to a place that I think you can scale. 
uh, when I saw benefit design in the piece, I'm like, okay, there's, there's right. some, there's some aggressive thinking. So uh, I like that. Yeah. Parna, would you disagree with my categorization that those domain themes we sort of broadly talked about great for organizations just starting out, maybe looking for some pointers on how to additionally mature their program, but then you also have a path forward section that may give some evidence for those that have highly mature programs, but are looking to evolve again. Would you say that's correct, incorrect? Did I miss something? Um, I would say mostly correct. I would sort of clarify in, in a couple of ways. I, the, the domains, I think, and all of the sub-themes and the promising practices that are associated with, you know, all the sub-themes, um, uh, to, to me, they are useful to payers, um, but I, I think they're also useful to providers, um, irrespective of whether they are... Um, you know, starting out or, you know, new entering, you know, new entrants to these kinds of models um, so that they can kind of learn from their peers and see uh, how they, you know, figure out how they might succeed. But I also think it's useful for organizations that are, that are, you know, that are mature because it gives them a way to benchmark, right? So it says, well, here's, you know, let's take data and analytics. Let's take a look at what the best practices are you know, around that and then compare that to what they already have in place. Um, I actually heard somebody recently, I was at a conference uh, in San Diego, the APG conference, and, and uh, spoke on a session about the roadmap and somebody, you know, some folks came up and said afterwards that it was really helpful for them to benchmark and hear what I was saying because it helped them benchmark what they were doing. And and it was kind of reassuring for them to say, oh, you know, a lot of what we have in place is, it's kind of what the, you know, where the field is or the, what the best practices are. So I would say in that sense, the roadmap is really kind of meant for, you know, um, both early entrants and, and maybe some, you know, people who are newer to these models as well as, you know, more advanced organizations. Um, the path forward section is really, you know, more about um, areas that uh, where, we, where we felt or the you know, the guiding committee in the land felt that, um, you know, immediate further action would be needed to to accelerate the adoption. You know, you sort of had some, you know, remarks in there about how important it was to think about benefit design and how you evolve benefit design. That's certainly sort of one area. Um, I think the quality measurement piece is, is also uh, something that um, where, you know, based on this work, I would say, um, you know, uh, an important area for further development, you know, shifting away from process measures. You know, a lot of the measures that were used in these models that we examined as part of the roadmap were, you know, mostly HEDIS-based measures. Um, and then, you know, greater focus on measure alignment, which obviously is something that everybody recognizes is important. Um, so, uh, so I think those paths forward are really areas that are important and the roadmap has suggestions for, you know, taking immediate action in some of these areas because, you know, it was important for uh, more generally for accelerating the adoption of successful, you know, APMs. Any uh, thoughts on beyond HEDIS? Where would you go with some outcomes? Sure. Uh, and this is, you know, I, I would say this is sort of more my, you know, represents my viewpoint. And I've written about this you know, I'm published in Health Affairs blog, so um, it's, it's you know, it's public. But I would say, um, and it draws upon some of the land's earlier work, too, um, is the outcome-focused measurement, right? Um, 
so, uh, you know, especially as we think about, you know, measures for accountability, which is what, you know, these models are, um, you know, moving more towards outcome-focused measurement, I think, you know, is an important part of that. Um, I think, uh, you know, and also measures that are longitudinal uh, in the sense that, you know, you you can identify um, and assess performance based on, you know, the entire care continuum over time as well as, you know, uh, across, you know, settings. And and to some extent you want to be, quote-unquote, site neutral because you're really trying to assess, you know, how well the patient did across the continuum. But I think certainly the emphasis is more on the outcomes-focused measurement is is where I think, you know, the the field needs to go. Um, But there's a lot of work that needs to be done to, you know, help make that happen, um, especially if, you know, you want to move uh, into outcomes more broadly that involve use of multiple sources of data, right, whether it's claims-based, you know, um, clinical uh, outcomes using clinical data, and then, of course, you know, uh, patient-reported outcome measures. Hopefully it's not protected by a form fill or a subscription. No, it's not. Um, no, so the two, pap- the two uh, uh, fairly recent um, blog posts that I have, uh, one was with uh, Mark McClellan and then the other one was with Dana Safran, but both very much focused on this issue of um, outcomes, you know, outcomes for focus measurement. I like it pushing the envelope. That's great. Based on your work on building out the roadmap, sure you gained a lot of great insights that our listeners would like to understand. What advice would you give to payers looking to advance their APM programs? Um, so I would say um, sort of highlight some of the, you know, come back to some of the things we talked about. Um, you know, obviously provider readiness varies. So, you know, it's really important to recognize that readiness, which I think, you know, many of the payers are already doing, but allowing for flexibility, both in the structure of the payment and the contract, but also, you know, the intensity of supports, as we talked about, you know, being able to calibrate that. Um, I think looking ahead, um, you know, the issue of benefit design is, is an important one to tackle in the context of you know, provider payment reform, and also um, figuring out how to engage patients in the design of the models. Um, I think, uh, you know, if one of the challenges that we heard uh, in the roadmap from providers, not shouldn't be surprising, is around, um, you know, alignment. Um, And alignment of quality measures, but also some of the other sort of key elements of APMs. For example, you know, if you uh, think about episodes, you know, ensuring that there are common definitions that are being used so that providers don't have, you know, three or four different definitions for the same, you know, clinical episode. So those are all kinds of things that I think um, would help in terms of accelerating APMs and, and certainly something that, you know, the, uh, the came out of the roadmap effort loud and clear and ways to reduce that sort of burden on the providers so they can really focus on, you know, transforming uh, care delivery. Excellent. Let's flip hats and say same question, but to the provider population evaluating APM contract. Sure. Yep. Um, I would say readiness. I think, uh, and here readiness means, you know, something different. Um, so it's sort of helping providers or, or pro- providers to think about what components do I need to have in place to be stru- successful in these models. Um I think data infrastructure and learning how to use and apply the data, you know, to manage patients 
and really as part of care delivery transformation is, is a key. Um, uh, practice transformation, obviously, I think it's difficult to be successful in these models without, you know, with that, without those efforts. You know, that could include anything from hiring um, staff, such as care coordinators, to um, figuring out, um, you know, how you work with hospitals uh, and, you know, sort of there's timely sharing of information, for example. Um, and then how do you work with other specialists, you know? Uh, so, for example, if you're a primary care p- a physician participating in these models, how do you think about your referral network? Um, and then finally, sort of also, I think, fully being able to understand, you know, the terms of the contract and what this all means for them. Um, the one area that uh, I want to emphasize that, you know, sort of, you know, I don't think we touched upon it, um, which came up sort of as important both from the payer uh, perspective as well as the provider perspective is, you know, leadership and and cultural change, um, right? So th- that's that's really big. From the payer standpoint, you know, th- that's not something that they, you know, directly, inf- you know, control within a practice, but they uh, obviously look for certain characteristics when they're selecting practices to move into APMs and leadership and cultural, you know, organizational culture is one of them. And they also work and tend to engage closely with the clinical leaders within these provider organizations. But from the provider perspective, you know, that's really a big um, area that emerged from the roadmap as being critical, you know, for success. Um, And the importance of having a clinical champion and being able to get all the clinicians within the organization to understand and embrace those goals, right, that are set at the organizational level. And this was something that I found interesting. Um, I think there's been a lot of discussion about how, um, you know, even though organizations are entering into contracts with payers uh, that changes the way payment is being made, that within the organization, within the provider organization, you know, most clinicians are still being paid sort of on a fee-for-service basis. I mean, I think that's generally sort of what we all hear and, and think about. So within, within the roadmap, when we were talking to these organizations, what we found is some of that is is starting to change. Uh, um, and these organizations that participated in the roadmap, you know, some of them had are using both financial as well as non-financial incentives within the organizations to achieve the goal. So, for example, you know, some of the provider organizations that tied clinician, you know, frontline clinician incentives to achievement of quality performance or tying it to shared savings. Um, other non-financial ways of motivating and rewarding clinicians, like transparent reporting of performance. Um, so I think, you know, we're starting to see how um, incentives or payment structures that have been established at the organizational level are starting to, you know, cascade within the organization. And I think that's, you know, an important um learning that came out of the roadmap would would be good for the field to be aware of, but also to really recognize the importance of, you know, leadership and and culture change. What I'm hearing is that we need some more time. Maybe we'll have you come back and we'll dive into some of the deeper issues because you have a very balanced perspective coming out from the deep background that you bring to the community. Final words of wisdom? Sure. Well, um, I guess my final words of wisdom would, would be to say keep at it. Um, I think we've been doing this, you know, we've been embarked on this APM journey now for about a decade and, you know, have experienced some success. Still have a long way to go, obviously, if you looked at the data, right, uh, healthcare spend relative to GDP. Um, now, 
and and working towards that true transformation is critical. Uh, and I think we need you know more disruptive innovation, maybe in in the way that um, you know Netflix came and changed the way we consume you know uh, content, for example. Um, so important to stay the course in terms of moving away from fee for service. Now, having said that, it's not easy, right? Um, and we've had this fee for service system. I don't know if I even want to call it a system for a long time. You know, <laughs> about 50 years, and and it's not easy to shift a whole whole um, industry that's been used to uh, doing business one way in, into a completely sort of a different approach. I think we've made great strides, but I think it's important to keep the momentum going. Um, and I realize it's not easy. Um, and I thought, you know, um, this is one of my favorite quotes, actually, uh, from a you know, former president um, who said, you know, we choose to go to the moon and do these other things. And I'm paraphrasing here, obviously, not because they're easy, but because they're hard. Absolutely. It's a part of progress in the old adage of anything worth doing is going to take some time, take effort, but we are starting to make a change. I would also add on that it is changing. There is no stopping it. I believe, yes, we've been doing it for 10 years. But if you're not participating, you're putting yourself in the laggards position. Pick up what you can. Change is hard. There are partners out there. There are valuable community members. For the listeners, if they wanted to learn more, Aparna, about the HCP LAN, or affectionately called the LAN's work, or connect with you, how would they do that? Um, well, if they want to learn more about the LAN, uh, the best place to do that would be to uh, visit the website. Um, I would encourage everybody to visit the LAN website and, and specifically the roadmap website. Um, uh, it, has a, it has a fantastic interactive, you know, roadmap tool. There's a PDF version of the report for those who uh, want to download it. Um, but there's also, I think, you know, a much more interactive way of learning all of the promising practices, you know, that um, some of which I've touched upon in, in today's um, uh, discussion, um, as well as other, you know, land resources. So I would say the land website is is the best place to go for people who want to learn more about the land and take advantage of the roadmap and the resources available um, uh, to help uh, understand better the promising practices associated with design and implementation of APM. Fantastic. And as I did, you can always find Aparna on LinkedIn. She's out there. That is true. Aparna, really appreciate your time. Enjoy the conversation. I'm hoping we might be able to entice you to come back again to touch on some of those other areas. Sure, I'd be happy to come back, and I really enjoyed the conversation as well, and um, thank you so much. 